Chapter Eleven of The Innocents Abroad by Mark Twain. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. To find out more or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter Eleven of The Innocents Abroad by Mark Twain. Getting used to it. Read for you by Anna Blackwell, Santa Ana, California, November two thousand seven. Chapter Eleven. We are getting foreignized rapidly and with facility. We are getting reconciled to halls and bedchambers with unhomelike stone floors and no carpets, floors that ring to the tread of one's heels with a sharpness that is death to sentimental musing. We are getting used to tidy, noiseless waiters who glide hither and thither and hover about your back and your elbows like butterflies, quick to comprehend orders, quick to fill them. Thankful for a gratuity without regard to the amount, and always polite, never otherwise than polite. That is the strangest curiosity yet, a really polite hotel waiter who isn't an idiot. We are getting used to driving right into the central court of the hotel, in the midst of a fragrant circle of vines and flowers, and in the midst also of parties of gentlemen, sitting quietly reading the paper and smoking. We are getting used to ice frozen by artificial process in ordinary bottles, the only only kind of ice they have here. We are getting used to all these things, but we are not getting used to carrying our own soap. We are sufficiently civilized to carry our own combs and toothbrushes, but this thing of having to ring for soap every time we wash is new to us and not pleasant at all. We think of it just after we get our heads and faces thoroughly wet, or just when we think we have been in the bathtub long enough. And then, of course, an annoying delay follows. The Marseillaises make Marseillaise hymns, and Marseilles vest, and Marseilles soap for all the world, but they never sing their hymns or wear their vests or wash with their soap themselves. We have learned to go through the lingering routine of the table d'hote with patience, with serenity, with satisfaction. We take soup, then wait a few minutes for the fish, a few minutes more, and the plates are changed, and the roast beef comes. Another change, and we take peas. Change again, and take lentils. Change, and take snail patties. I prefer grasshoppers. Change, and take roast chicken and salad, then strawberry pie and ice cream, then green figs, pears, oranges, green almonds, etc. Finally, coffee. Wine with every course, of course, being in France. With such a cargo on board, digestion is a slow process, and we must sit long in the cool chambers and smoke and read French newspapers. Which have a strange fashion of telling a perfectly straight story till you get to the nub of it, and then a word drops in that no man can translate, and that story is ruined. An embankment fell on some Frenchman yesterday, and the papers are full of it today. But whether those sufferers were killed, or crippled, or bruised, or only scared, is more than I can possibly make out, and yet I would just give anything to know. We were troubled a little at dinner today by the conduct of an American who talked very loudly and coarsely and laughed boisterously where all others were so quiet and well behaved. He ordered wine with a royal flourish and said, I never dine without wine, sir, which was a pitiful falsehood, and looked around upon the company to bask in the admiration he expected to find in their faces. All these airs in a land where they would as soon expect to leave the soup out of the bill of fare as the wine. In a land where wine is nearly as common among all ranks as water, this fellow said, I am a free-born sovereign, sir, an American, sir, and I want everybody to know it. He did not mention that he was a lineal descendant of Balaam's ass, but everybody knew that without his telling it. 
We have driven in the Prado, that superb avenue, bordered with patrician mansions and noble shade-trees, and have visited the Chateau Borelli and its curious museum. They showed us a miniature cemetery there, a copy of the first graveyard that ever was in Marseilles, no doubt. The delicate little skeletons were lying in broken vaults, and had their household gods and kitchen utensils with them. The origin of this cemetery was dug up in the principal street of the city a few years ago. It had remained there, only twelve feet underground, for a matter of twenty-five hundred years or thereabouts. Romulus was here before he built Rome. Thought something of founding a city on this spot, but gave up the idea. He may have been personally acquainted with some of these Phoenicians whose skeletons we have been examining. In the great zoological gardens we found specimens of all the animals the world produces, I think, including a dromedary, a monkey ornamented with tufts of brilliant blue and carmine hair, a very gorgeous monkey he was, a hippopotamus from the Nile, and a sort of tall, long-legged bird with a beak like a powder horn, and close-fitting wings like the tails of a dress coat. This fellow stood up with his eyes shut and his shoulders stooped forward a little, and looked as if he had his hands under his coat-tails. Such tranquil stupidity, such supernatural gravity, such self-righteousness, and such ineffable and such ineffable self-complacency as were in the countenance and attitude of that grey-bodied, dark-winged, bald-headed, and preposterously uncomely bird. He was so ungainly, so pimply about the head, so scaly about the legs, yet so serene, so unspeakably satisfied. He was the most comical-looking creature that can be imagined. It was good to hear Dan and the doctor laugh. Such natural and such enjoyable laughter had not been heard among our excursionists since our ship sailed away from America. This bird was a godsend to us, and I should be an ingrate if I forgot to make honorable mention of him in these pages. Ours was a pleasure excursion, therefore we stayed with that bird an hour and made the most of him. We stirred him up occasionally, but he only unclosed an eye and slowly closed it again, abating no jot of his stately piety of demeanor or his tremendous seriousness. He only seemed to say, Defile not heaven's anointed with unsanctified hands. We did not know his name, and so we called him the Pilgrim. Dan said, All he wants now is a Plymouth collection. The boon companion of the colossal elephant was a common cat. This cat had a fashion of climbing up the elephant's hind legs and roosting on his back. She would sit up there with her paws curved under her breast and sleep in the sun half the afternoon. It used to annoy the elephant at first, and he would reach up and take her down, would go aft and climb up again. She persisted until she finally conquered the elephant's prejudices, and now they are inseparable friends. The cat plays about her comrade's forefeet or his trunk often, until dogs approach, and then she goes aloft out of danger. The elephant has annihilated several dogs lately that pressed his companion too closely. We hired a sailboat and a guide, and made an excursion to one of the small islands in the harbor to visit the Castle Dief. This ancient fortress has a melancholy history. It has been used as a prison for political offenders for two or three hundred years, and its dungeon walls are scarred with the rudely carved names of many and many a captive who fretted his life away here, and left no record of himself but these sad epitaphs wrought with his own hands. How thick the names were! and their long-departed owners seemed to throng the gloomy cells and corridors with their phantom shapes. We loitered through dungeon after dungeon, away down into the living rock below the level of the sea, it seemed. Names everywhere, some plebeian, some noble, some even princely. Plebeian, prince, and noble had one solicitude in common. They would not be forgotten. 
They could suffer solitude, inactivity, and the horrors of a silence that no sound ever disturbed, but they could not bear the thought of being utterly forgotten by the world. Hence the carved names. In one cell where a little light penetrated, a man had lived twenty-seven years without seeing the face of a human being, lived in filth and wretchedness, with no companionship but his own thoughts, and they were sorrowful enough and hopeless enough, no doubt. Whatever his jailers considered that he needed was conveyed to his cell by night through a wicket. This man carved the walls of his prison-house from floor to roof with all manner of figures of men and animals grouped in intricate designs. He had toiled there year after year at his self-appointed task, while infants grew to boyhood, to vigorous youth, idled through school and college, acquired a profession, claimed man's mature estate, married, and looked back to infancy as to a thing of some vague, ancient time almost. But who shall tell how many ages it seemed to this prisoner? With the one time flew sometimes, with the other, never. It crawled always. To the one, night spent dancing had seemed made of minutes instead of hours. To the other, those selfsame nights had been like all other nights of dungeon life, and seemed made of slow, dragging weeks instead of hours and minutes. One prisoner of fifteen years had scratched verses upon his walls, and brief prose sentences, brief but full of pathos. These spoke not of himself in his hard estate, but only of the shrine where his spirit fled the prison to worship, of home and the idols that were templed there. He never lived to see them. The walls of these dungeons are as thick as some bedchambers at home are wide, fifteen feet. We saw the damp, dismal cells in which two of Dumas' heroes passed their confinement, heroes of Monte Cristo. It was here that the brave Abbey wrote a book with his own blood, with a pen made of a piece of iron hoop, by the light of a lamp made out of shreds of cloth, soaked in grease obtained from his food, and then dug through the thick wall with some trifling instrument, which he wrought himself out of a stray piece of iron or table cutlery, and freed Dante's from his chains. It was a pity that so many weeks of dreary labor should have come to naught at last. They showed us the noisome cell with a celebrated iron mask, that ill-starred brother of a hard-hearted king of France was confined for a season before he was sent to hide the strange mystery of his life from the curious in the dungeons of St. Marguerite. The place had a far greater interest for us than it could have if we had known beyond all question who the Iron Mask was and what his history had been, and why this most unusual punishment had been meted out to him. Mystery! That was the charm! That speechless tongue, those prison features, that heart so freighted with unspoken troubles, and that breast so oppressed with its piteous secret had been here. These dank walls had known the man whose dolorous story is a sealed book forever. There was fascination in the spot. That was Chapter 11 of The Innocence Abroad, Getting Used to It, by Mark Twain. Read for you by Anna Blackwell, Santa Ana, California, November 2007.